is The Next Trip Podcast with Aviation Insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 181, operating on May 15, 2023. This is Doug, an airline pilot, and I'm here with my buddy Drew, an airline ops manager. We're here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. Drew, this is a loaded episode. We have a lot of great topics to discuss, but before we dig in, anything sticking out in your week? No, neither of us have had any trips anywhere, so it's just work. And I want to say it's boring, but this work week has not been boring. So just real quick, we sat down, you know, I've been to all these summer EROPS meetings, so now it's time to put pen to paper at our local station and put everything we've learned into progress. And it it's like... We know what to do, but we don't put enough stuff on paper. Got to do that so we don't reinvent the wheel for every irregular operations. But one item, Doug, that we keep that we don't think about is when we have diversions and we have sometimes a thousand people that need to get up to New York that couldn't make it. We're constantly trying to figure out how to get these people. And we think we know better than the customer. But I think something that we don't factor in is how resourceful customers are. At the end of the day, we're ordering all these buses and we find out, wait a minute, we thought we had 600 people. Why are there only 200 here? It's because people find their own way to wherever they're going. That's something we have to factor into because we have all this set up, but people aren't here. And it's like, where do they go? And the best example was last week, Sunday, I think we had a thunderstorm. We had all these flights. We had a couple flights that were canceled. So about 300 people. So obviously you would think, okay, I need an extra section to get some of these people to New York, right? So we had a 757 going up to Newark, ferrying up there. And I'm like, can we turn this flight into a passenger section? So that's where we convert it from a ferry flight to an actual Mm -hmm. revenue passenger section. NOC is awesome at this. You would think it's a big job, but turn it into a passenger section. That means you have to have catering for passengers. It's not just crew beverages like we normally have. You have flight to have attendance. flight attendants. And yep. on a 757, you need at least four. So we got to find them. But they did all that. So they got us, they converted that into a live section because I'm thinking we have at least 200 people sitting around, right? So we board the flight. Guess how many people showed up? This is two hours 50. after the camp. Close, 36 people. And I was kind of embarrassed. <laughs> And I, I was expecting that it was, that customer service was boarding that plane full. And the NOC director is like, hmm, only 36 people, huh? And I'm like, no, no way. So I go and look, only 36 people. Yeah. But it was a good decision because that's 36 people that were getting up to Newark. And we loaded 300 bags on there because any bag yeah. that was sitting around that didn't make it on previous flights is going. Oh, and customer service talks about customers will arrange themselves like they'll be in line at the customer service center because they're on a cancel flight. So when we had this meeting, the customer service supervisor was like, yeah, it just organically fixes itself. Like there'll be two families that are in line and they're like, oh, you're going to Boston? Oh yeah, I'm going to Boston too. Or you're going to Allentown? Rent a van. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, yeah, you want to go with us? People are so resourceful. So that's, that's what happens. And I think that is what you or I would do. If there's no hope to get up to the Northeast, we're going to go to Avis or Hertz, rent a Cadillac, and you know we'll be there in three and a half hours. Or you could stand in line for an hour. People it reminds think- me, I, I know we've talked about this before, <laughs> but every time you bring this up, it reminds me of that scene from Home Alone 
uh-huh. when John Candy has the polka band in the back of the rider truck, <laughs> and they bring Macaulay Culkin's mom home. <laughs> yeah. People find their way, you know? They're very resourceful. That and one more thing. So yesterday, um, so my resident av geeks here are Patrick and Ryan. Patrick moves on, works on the move team, and he's constantly like, let's go, I'm going to take you... But it, I always seem to be so busy. Yesterday was my office day. We drove out to the hangar. Out there it was a 787, and a maintenance guy was there, so we were talking. Some fun facts on the 787 engines, Doug. So the fan blade, these are GE NX engines. So he told me one of those fan blades cost $250,000. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 16 fan blades. And then, you know, this plane is so, it relies on electric. It's fly-by-wire. It's electric. They don't use... It doesn't use bleed air, which most planes use to turn the engines. It's all electric. Electric generators. Each of those engines has two electric generators, and there's two electric generators in the APU also. So there's so many backups. All the generators collectively, he said, creates about 1,400 kilowatts of energy. So your house, my house, for the whole day, it uses 20 kilowatts of energy on average. Yeah. So you could power 70 houses with that 787. <laughs> like you could park the 787 in my neighborhood and basically power the whole neighborhood. It, it's amazing. That's it. <laughs> That's my Those are the highlights. <laughs> what about you? Well, I'm four out of five sims done for the week. It's, we're recording on Friday. I've got my final sim for the week. It's the, the first couple sims were fun. It was We were doing upset recovery, yes. which is stalls and things like that. And kind of learning how to land the airplane and, and that was fun and then the second flight was a lot of the same and then starting on wednesday ride three that's when we got into our engine failures and and rejects and all the non-normal things engine and separation. I, I told you we haven't we haven't gotten to an engine separation yet <laughs> but i told you on wednesday that it it was relatively easy to handle much easier than the dc-10 was not quite to the same level as the triple my sim partner and I were doing well enough that yesterday we rotated, lost an engine. It was just a rollback. We were at our max takeoff gross weight, and then we went into the weather. So you lose an engine going into the weather, so you have to do all those procedures. When you lose an engine, if you don't know why, if it's just a rollback, you can start the engine. You can try and restart the engine. So then mm-hmm. we'd secure the engine. We, we fully shut it down. Then we got into the restart. And then we realized, hey, we're over our max landing weight, so we're going to have to fuel dump. So we started that. While we're in these multiple checklists, so securing the engine, trying to restart, also dumping at the same time, we got a dual hydraulic loss, meaning that we lost fluid in both Mm -hmm. of our hydraulic systems. So Mm -hmm. then we had to run that checklist, had to go into holding, brought it back. We did get the engine started, so we were back to two engines, brought it back, we landed. And at this point now, the seats that we're sitting in, they're just they're hot and they're wet because mm-hmm. we're sweaty and, and we're working hard. And in fact, yeah. my watch picked up a, a workout and said, record <laughs> your, your, your workout. Cause my, my heart rate, heart is, rate yeah, mm-hmm. elevated. So my watch is like, Oh, definitely working out. And we got on the ground and my sim partner asked the instructor, was that all supposed to be in the profile today? And he said, no, it was just supposed to be the hydraulic failure, the dual hydraulic fa- failure. Oh, so they did the rest but you of the guys. Form. But you guys are doing so well that I thought I would yep, throw a whole bunch of other compounding. <laughs> I got so that. In these- my, my sim partner was laughing. He was like, I need to go back to my room and take a cold shower after this. Oh, no, I would need to go into a corner of a room and just cry because those are these are like <laughs> near death experiences. Right? Each one of them, like each it's like each, each- one of them. 
<laughs> yeah, that is crazy. And we should say for the listeners, so Doug is training on a KC-46, which is a military version of the 767. We were talking about the DC-10 for years because you were flying a KC-10. Now we're talking about the 767. But yeah, I mean, you do all this, then you go out to a bar. It's almost like you've you've like lived a near-death experience. Yeah, he and I went out for pizza and beers on Wednesday after our first engine failures mm-hmm. <laughs> just to celebrate that we had not gotten the red screen of death in the sim. Well, so I want to ask you, so you're taking off, you have an engine failure. Does the airplane automatically help you with this? Like, does it do opposite rudder no. to correct for the difference in power at least? No, it, it doesn't. It's not like the triple. The triple has a system. It's called TAC, thrust asymmetry compensation, where the rudder actually helps you out. The, the 7.6 on departure, when you lose an engine, it doesn't. It does if you're doing a certain type of precision approach called an instrument landing system approach. It will help with the rudder a little bit if you have the autopilot on, but that's the only time that it really helps is just on that particular kind of approach. So you have an engine failure, so you're doing the rudder yourself to correct because yeah. now the plane's going to turn because you have more power on one side. Do you yeah, also we call that in- asymmetric thrust. Asymmetric thrust. Now, do you also increase the power on the remaining engine? If yes, you have to be careful with that. If you're if you're really heavy, you you absolutely have to. But you need to increase it slowly because as you increase the power, you increase that asymmetric thrust. So as you increase the power, you also need to input introduce more rudder into the equation to be able to keep the wings level. And this this is why they put us in bad weather in, mm-hmm. in the sim. You rotate and you go straight into the weather. So you have to look at your instruments. You can't look at the horizon. Oh, like okay. it, it is, it is a worst case scenario. When you're light, we we've done a couple of engine failures when we're a, quite a bit lighter. You don't really have to introduce much additional power. It's it's pretty well powered at lighter weights, but at, at heavy weights, it's kind of a pig. Single engine. Okay. Now the other question is: This is a smaller plane than the triple seven, and it, you're saying the cockpit is pretty modern. Why is this? The triple seven is still more agile in situations like this. Yeah, because the the cockpit doesn't really have anything to do with it. It's all about the aerodynamics of the airplane, and the triple seven has larger a larger tail, so its rudder is a little bit bigger. Its wings are are longer. The seven sixty seven two hundred is a very stocky, stubby airplane. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a short airplane with a shorter wings. Well. The wingspan is about the same as the length of the airplane, but the the seven sixty two hundred is it it reminds me of like the A three ten where it's just it it doesn't proportionally it doesn't look the same as other large airplanes. It's just short and stocky, and the aerodynamic effects of it are a lot different than on the triple. Yeah, well, sounds like a, a fun week. So does that continue these emergency situations this next week? Yeah, I've got Sim 5 today, and then I've got 12 more of the same near-death experiences <laughs> until I have my until I have my check ride, and I'm, I'm done, and then I move on to the flying portion. Yeah. All right. Well, nice job getting through it. All right. So let's uh, let's get started, Doug. We, ha- we have a pretty interesting, detailed, very av-geeky episode. I want to make sure that we don't lose a lot of listeners, so I'm going to try and be the civilian in this conversation because you're gonna have a lot of detailed information and I may have to dumb it down even more that you said that you've dumbed it down. You've dumbed it down for me. Now I need to dumb it down for non-aviation. And when we say dumb down, I'm just saying this is not something, even for me, I got a degree in aviation. A lot of this stuff I know, but 
This is from 20 years ago, so I don't remember all this stuff. Moving, We'll start with our aviation term of the week, which is actually going to turn into several aviation terms. The FAA last week activated 169 new navigational routes along the eastern seaboard, Doug. These routes are expected to save 40,000 miles and 6,000 minutes or 100 hours of flight time. Are these the Q routes that people are talking about? This is... I want to say this is all going to make sense. It is kind of going to make sense to you after we're done with this topic. It it will make sense. We'll make sure of it. But first of all, Drew, that this question came up in my mind first and foremost. There are thousands of flights a day, and we're going to save a hundred hours annually by having these new routes. It sounds <laughs> okay. like I, I, just doing the math. I mean, that's like ten to fifteen seconds on a handful of daily flights. If you yeah. do the math on it. I, I get it. Any little any little save is, is a good save. But at first when they're like, oh, these new routes are going to save a lot of time, it's 100 hours for the entire system of hundreds of thousands of flights over the year. Not to say that every flight is going to be on one of these new routes, but I, I mean, we're talking about just seconds here that each flight might save. Well, that's what it is right now. So, you know, I was at one of those AirOps sessions. I was with our one of our ATC desk guys who used to work for the FAA. That this news brief had just come out about the FAA adding these new routes, and I was excited to talk to him about it. It's like, yeah, what about these new routes? Is that really gonna? Ch-? And the reaction was, meh. Yeah, <laughs> and they're they're like, yes, but it's gonna take a long time to transition to some of these routes. Yeah. Uh, well, going back to your question though about the Q routes, I couldn't find anywhere that explicitly says that the new routes are in fact Q routes, but I'm assuming that they are some variation thereof. Here we are in the first term of the week, Drew, and we we promised the listeners that we would cover it. What is a Q route? All right. So the FAA defines a Q route as a published flight route for use by RNAV equipped aircraft between 18,000 feet MSL and flight level 450, which is 45,000 feet. Wow. Okay. RNAV, MSL, FL, what on earth or in the sky do these mean? (laughs) <laughs> this is where I'm going to try and not get too terribly technical. I'm going to say the word and then I'm going to dumb it down to your level, Drew, and then mm-hmm. you can continue to dumb it down to our listeners level. I'm going to start with MSL and flight level. MSL stands for mean sea level. And basically that's the height that an airplane is above the surface of an ocean, which you shouldn't confuse with. I'm going to throw another term in here, AGL, which is above the ground level. Most of the altitudes that we use in aviation, at least while we're navigating from point to point, are depicted or we report it in MSL, above the ocean. That mm-hmm. dumb down, think about mm-hmm. an airplane's height above the ocean. For example, Denver sits at 5,500 feet MSL. The airport itself on the land is 5,500 feet above the ocean. Most approaches into that airport feed the airplanes into the final approach course around 8,000 feet. MSL. Now, Denver is thousands of miles from an ocean, but everyone uses sea level as that altitude reference so that everyone knows where the altitude, where the other airplanes are at when they report their altitude. So we can do some math here and figure out 8,000 feet MSL in Denver is roughly 2,500 feet AGL or above the ground. So you can see they're MSL and AGL. MSL is above the ocean. If you draw a line to the closest ocean and then elevate it straight down, that's your altitude above mean sea level. But we also use AGL above the ground. That's your actual relative height above the ground below you at that particular moment. 
Okay, so now i got to dumb it down some more. So when I'm landing my Cessna 172 at Martin State Airport in Maryland, that airport is 150 feet above the ground. So it's almost sea level. I'm asking this because I don't know, right? So mean sea level, that's a, that's a constant. Everyone can use that. And everyone's MSL measurement will be the same because they're basing, on, basing it on the sea level. But for, fly, for me, for flying an airplane, I need to know how far I am from the ground. Because when I'm doing my pattern, I want to start off at 1,500 AGL, 1,500 feet above the ground. And as I come down, I'm on my base leg, final leg, I'm down to about 700 feet AGL. I don't care about MSL. I mm-hmm. care how far the the ground is so that I know how to uh, do my pattern and how, I know how to judge where I am so that I can land at the right speed and altitude, right? So when you when I'm that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at AGL when I'm flying my plane around um, this area. When you are landing a triple seven at Denver, are you looking at AGL or MSL? I'm looking at both. Inside, we, we call it the final approach fix, which is basically where the airplane starts its descent to the ground. E- each of the altitudes that we have to stop at in a descent are based on clearance, uh, whether it's obstacle clearance, maybe buildings below us or other departures or other air routes below us. We have bottom altitudes, hard altitudes that we can't go below. Once I start that descent, a three degree glide slope to the runway, I'm worried about both. I'm worried about AGL because that way I know how much distance I have to lose. And in the flight deck, we get a call out that says 1,500, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. And those are all AGL. That is above the ground. That's giving me an idea of I'm 1,000 feet above the runway, 500 feet above the runway, and then it counts me down from 50. KC-46 or the 767, exact same. I care about MSL because if I'm in the clouds, I have a a decision altitude, we call it, an altitude that I can't go below unless I see the runway. So Mm. if the clouds are lower than my decision altitude, I I don't want to use AGL because if I use AGL, then I'm on a different altimeter setting. Basically, it's a hard MSL that is never going to change based on, on different situations. So I'm using both AGL and MSL. I know that's a very complex answer. But I'm in instrument flying, not not visual flying, like what, yeah. what you're talking about. You have to use both and you, you have to do math and conversions between them. That's because the weather, the weather is measured in MSL so that it's consistent, right? It, it's not. Measured no, in no, no. Where no, the clouds no, are and the turbulence. The weather, no, the weather is it, when when you're in the terminal area. And this is where mm-hmm. it gets really confusing. The weather is measured in AGL. So if they're calling if they're calling ceilings said, if they're calling ceilings of two hundred, mm-hmm. that's above the ground level. Mm-hmm. Now here's here's where it gets confusing. Air traffic control, whether it's towered, center, whoever, they are trying to match MSL and AGL as best they can for where your airplane is going to be, which is why we have and we're gonna talk about this in, in a little while, we call them altimeter settings, which is based on barometric pressure. So as the pressure changes, the altimeter changes, so that the MSL and the AGL, even though the numbers are different, you're going to end up at that decision altitude at where you should be able to see the runway. Okay. So let let me tell you what. I I brought up the altimeter setting. Let me just talk about this because this comes into FL or flight level, which we mentioned. 
FL stands for flight level. In the U.S., airplanes that are below 18,000 MSL, airplanes that are below 18,000 feet above the ocean are given what we call a barometric altimeter setting that matches what the pressure is on the ground. Meteorologists, weather stations, they're able to judge what the barometric pressure is, and they give us a setting, and we move our altimeter to match that setting. And it could be anything mm-hmm. yep. between somewhere around 29.50 inches of mercury all the way up to 30.63060 or even higher. Low pressure indicates bad weather. High pressure indicates good weather. Each 0.1 difference on the altimeter is equivalent to 10 feet. Therefore, the difference between an airplane with the lowest altimeter setting and the highest altimeter setting is more than 1,000 feet. So I could be an airplane. You and I are flying in, in both of our Cessnas right next to each other. We are on what our altimeter reads. We think that we're mm-hmm. at 5,000 feet. If okay. I have the wrong altimeter setting in, if I have 2950 set and you have 3060 set, you we'll are actually you are, you are 1,100 feet above me, yeah. above the ground, but our altimeter is, is showing 5,000 feet. So we both think that we're at 5,000 feet, but we are actually 1,100 feet separated from each other. That's why anytime below 18,000 feet above the ocean, airplanes get the local altimeter setting. So every airplane in that airspace is mm-hmm. on the same page and the same altitude. Just real quick. So me- <clears throat> mean sea level. So we can use the barometric pressure to calculate Right. Correct. It's not related to the AGL, which is physically the distance you are from the ground. Correct. And then yep. when we're above 18,000 feet, now we're at what we call the flight levels. And that's where, unless you're flying in a commercial airplane or a private jet, most most people's airplanes do not go above 18,000 feet. Once you go above 18, we go to a standardized altimeter setting around the world of 2992. That way you're not constantly having to change your altimeter to a local setting. Once you're above 18, mm-hmm. Everyone is on the same page. Everyone is at 2992. There's no question about what your altimeter looks like and what your your actual above the ground level is. We focus a lot on this discussion is mostly about commercial aviation. So we're talking about the jet routes. We're talking about the overhead routes that you see, the contrails of the airplanes flying overhead. So there's three navigational routes or airways. And this is what I found, Doug. So and there's Victor Airways. These are low altitude. These are below 18,000 feet. Then you have the jet routes or the J routes, which are above 18,000 feet. And then you have the high altitude RNAV routes, which you're going to talk about. Those are the Q routes. That's it. Now, you just introduced another term, RNAV. What, what does RNAV stand for? RNAV stands for Area Navigation. and basically means that an aircraft is using its GPS instead of flying off of what we call raw nav aids. And I know that you did some research this morning. A raw nav aid is, is those cones, those huge towering white cones that people might see at an airport. That's called a, a VOR, or it could be a TACAN. And basically, it's a, a radio or it's a station that's just broadcasting radio frequencies in 360 degrees so that airplanes can hone in on that beacon. Victor routes and jet routes are the old school way of navigating before GPS, where you literally would go point to point between these radio navigational beacons. Jet routes, you could stretch a little bit higher. It was 260 miles between each one. Victor routes, as you get lower and the slant range isn't as good, you have to be closer in. 
Now with GPS and it, these VORs and TACANs are incredibly expensive to operate mm -hmm. and to maintain. Yep. GPS now, they just throw a whole bunch of thousands of just random points, named points out there with yep. latitudes and longitudes that, that we all know what those are. And now we don't have to worry about these archaic navigational systems and we just use GPS. Well, I think, you know, people think that aviation is so modern and we're at the cutting edge of technology. We're actually not. So these um, VORs, it stands for Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Range, and it is a physical station. And the way they look, if you can imagine a plate with a cone on top of it, that is what the VOR looks like. We started using these in 1946, Doug. 1946. Mm -hmm. There were 3,000 around the world, 2,000 in the U.S., and as we're transitioning to GPS, we don't need these that much anymore. And in the U.S., we're down to 960. It's less than 1,000 now, and it's getting less and less. So they want to um, decommission most of them. And they'll just be a backup. If for some reason GPS isn't working, you'll have these physical stations that we can use. But it is definitely a, a relic that we keep using in aviation. Is your head spinning? I, I think the listeners' heads probably are. I say we move on. Hopefully, we clear that up. I, I know there's there's probably going to be some questions coming up. Feel free to ask them. I tried, well, I have, like I said, to dumb it down as best I could. Well, and then so the question arises, and this is to me as um, being more civilian than you in terms of this. With all this GPS technology, why do we need air traffic controllers? Why can't people just plot their course? It's something called free flight, which they were talking about years and years ago. But it doesn't look like we'll get there anytime soon. So talking to Bob at one of these summer air ops meetings, I asked him about that. He said it could be possible west of the Mississippi, but east of the Mississippi, the traffic is so dense. Free flight where you where you file your flight plan. And if it doesn't, it doesn't conflict with someone else's flight plan. You can use it and you shouldn't have to talk to air traffic control. Not that easy. It's just too congested to be able to do that. I, I've, I've learned to never say never where I could see us going to free flight. It, right now, it, if I were to file a flight plan, I might fly that actual physical flight plan that I filed less than 50% of the time because mm -hmm. weather gets in front of me. There's traffic in front of me. I need a shortcut. I need to hold lots of different variations to it until our systems get smart enough that when I deviate from my flight plan, it alerts everyone else then we still need air traffic control because I need yeah. to ask them or tell them what I'm doing. And they need to then make sure that that works with all the other traffic that's out there. Yeah. Again, why, why I said never say never with the introduction of artificial intelligence now and onboard systems on the airplanes, if the airplanes can just like, if I just change my route of flight and it sends it to some supercomputer somewhere that's running these calculations and looking at every other airplane's route of flight, if it doesn't conflict, it could say, yes, mm -hmm. that's acceptable. Go ahead and execute. If right. it looks and it sees that it's not, it'll say denied. Th that that then is a supercomputer that is taking the place of air traffic control. I think we're probably dozens, if not hundreds of years, maybe not mm -hmm. hundreds, but we are many, many, many years away from every single airplane in the system having that type of navigational ability from having a supercomputer that is big enough, smart enough, enough computing power, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, to be able to, to do that system 
yeah. that every airplane is is working autonomously together. It's going to be years and years and years. I don't want to say never. I, I think that eventually we could get there. Yeah, but it's it's going to be a really long time. Well, in the meantime, can the air traffic controllers just um, just enter it on Chat GPT and say? Give this flight a routing from San Francisco to Denver with with uh, you know bad weather in between, and then Chat GPT would just tell you what to. Do. You you joke about that, but that a lot of a lot of the dispatch functions at airlines is artificial intelligence. The the dispatcher puts in the the constraints. It's this type of airplane capable of this weight going from this airport to that airport. Give me the most efficient flight based on turbulence forecast, based on winds, based on weather, based on yep. air traffic congestion. So in a way, we the, the dispatchers are doing that. So mm-hmm. that is a step in the right direction. And in the old school ways or days, dispatchers would have all these all these charts out and, and they're physically manually plotting, plotting, of course, manually yeah. plotting. But now the dispatchers, they're, they're able to, to say, this airplane is going from Minneapolis to Chicago hit a button, give me the most efficient route. Uh-huh. And what that does, that frees the dispatcher up then to physically follow the, the airplanes that they are dispatching. When, right. they, when the dispatchers used to have to do all this by hand, yeah. it was basically just set it and forget it. Like, hey, dispatch the airplane, go. I can't follow you and give you updates on your route of flight because I have all right. these other flights I'm dealing with. But now the, I, I get ACARS messages from dispatchers all the time with updates uh, along our route of flight. Because mm-hmm. they have the bandwidth to be able to actually follow along with us, so th- mm-hmm. this is where AI is actually. And I, I know we're, we've really digressed from what we were originally talking about, but that's where it's actually making aviation better, more efficient, safer. Because it's it's removing a lot of the manpower or woman power needed mm-hmm. to be able to la- to launch and, and operate these airplanes. Right. So that now that person is free to talk to you about more pressing issues. But the clerical Correct. issues in terms of route and where where thunderstorm exactly. is, we know that you know that can be, you know, automatically put in there. So okay, so you're saying we don't have uh, ATC GPT, but we do kind of have Google Maps of ATC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Drew, I'll let you take the first news story this week since it's an actual article about something that you asked last week. It's almost like these journalists are listening to our episodes as as inspiration for their articles. They really are. And we should get royalties for this because another thing that I saw, you talked about direct. Remember, we did a whole segment mm. on direct and nonstop. Oh, I won't, I won't forget it. Uh, one of these aviation blogs, One Mile at a Time, they have a whole story on direct versus nonstop. Yeah, it Once came out it this is- week after, <laughs> yeah. after we released. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, this is something that I was ranting about. And then sure enough, next week, it's a news story in Bloomberg or where, where was it? Uh, yeah, Bloomberg. So I beg the question, is the A220 going to eventually replace the A320 family, aside from the A321neo and the 737? Well, Bloomberg just reported on this very topic, Doug. As we mentioned, Airbus is laying the groundwork for a stretched version of the A220-300. The new model will become the A220-500 and will seat around 170 passengers, roughly the same capacity as an A320neo and a 737 MAX 8. This will give Airbus a huge advantage over Boeing, Doug. It doesn't need to spend the billions of dollars required to produce a clean sheet design. Instead, it can harness the already developed A220 technology and stretch it into a larger product. Boeing is, again, at a severe disadvantage. It has already said it won't design a new clean sheet aircraft this decade, and it wants to wait for a generational leap in technology 
one that will increase fuel savings by 20 to 30 percent over what is available today on the Max and Neo families. Stretching the A220 isn't a simple task, however, as it will necessitate a redesign of the wing and the engine pylons. Does Boeing really need, we're always um, re- suggesting that Boeing needs to come up with a new product. But as we're going to have a story, a few stories coming up this week, do they really need to? Because the 737 is selling like hotcakes. The A320 is still selling like hotcakes. We're stuck with the 737. I, I think that's become blatantly abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. Some things I was reading about this, I, we're, we're all all for the A220-500. I, I don't know of anyone who is against it, but some things that some analysts were saying in the last probably three years, four years, especially since we started the show, it's been all Airbus win, Airbus win, Airbus win, Boeing setback, Boeing setback, Boeing setback. Some analysts are saying Airbus is actually behind the curve on this as well, that they should have launched the A22500 soon after they received the program three years ago or four years ago. Analysts are saying that it, it might be actually too late now, even though the airlines need it and it will be mm-hmm. a successful airplane. Oh, right. They're, yep. they're, they're saying that it might be a little bit too late because they are going to have to redesign the wing and the pylons. That is going to cost quite a bit of money. It's going mm-hmm. to take some time. And that's it, it's not like we're looking at an entry of service in the next year or two. The A22500, it could be three, four, possibly five years before that even gets introduced. In five years' time, let, let's say the entry into service is 20, 2027, we'll say four years, for the AT2500. At that point, that's four years of technological advancements that maybe Boeing gets that, what they call, quote, a general, generational leap in technology in the next four years. And maybe they will already be working on their new product, which then would vault mm-hmm. Boeing technologically over Airbus at the beginning of the 2030s, at the beginning oh, of the right. next decade. That's why yeah. analysts are saying maybe it's too late for Airbus. They're, they're going to have to go forward with it, but maybe it's too late. Where if they'd done it a couple of years ago, then they too could be on par with Boeing to create a new clean sheet around 2030. But this is going to set them on, yeah. on their timeline, bumping up against where Boeing might actually leapfrog them like the A220 has leapfrogged the current product. Well, and even though publicly Boeing is saying they're not working on a clean sheet, do you really believe that? I mean, I'm sure that there's some very smart people, you know, in Seattle or Chicago or Arlington here where they're based working on some project. And it's probably going to be a whole paradigm shift that will blow our minds, right? Because they're said, you know, they're saying they're looking for a generational leap. Now, you, you know, you talked about the additional cost of the extra, you know, redesigning the wing and the engine pylons. Is it worth it? Because they have the A320. So is it is it worth it to do all this or just have the A320 continue to be yeah, that size? That's airplane? a great question. I mean, as AFG, yeah. we hope they do it. Boeing should still consider working with Embraer. Embraer has the 195E2, which is the competitor to the A220-500 or the A220-300. They were working on a merger or a taking control of the commercial part of Embraer's airplanes, but that went away in 2020. I think they need to revisit that if they're not going to do a clean sheet airplane, just work with Embraer so that the A220, 300, 500, whatever has yeah, competition. I agree. Well, while the potential A220, 500 isn't great for Boeing, it's not all bad news for Boeing. Ryanair just announced an order for 150 737 MAX 10s with options for 150 more. 
in total before bulk discounts, which airlines generally receive in orders like this, this order could be valued at upwards of $40 billion. The order is a much needed win for Boeing, whose talks with Ryanair stalled in 2021. This is the largest ever order for Ryanair, and it's the first order for the largest version of the MAX from Ryanair, which is an aircraft that is currently undergoing testing but isn't yet certified. Drew, this blew my mind. Ryanair said it expects the MAX 10 to have 228 seats. This is reaching wide-body territory. Mm -hmm. Eric texted me this morning. At no context, he just said 228 seats, question mark. And I knew exactly mm-hmm. exactly what he was talking about. We could have a 767 at one gate in a high premium configuration, which ours has 166 seats. And you could have a 737 MAX 10 next to it with over 200 <laughs> seats. This is Ryanair, so they're expected to have a crazy amount of seats, right? But our 737 900s and those of American... I think American has 800s. A 737-900 has about 180 seats. Yeah. And A321s have, even with first class, uh-huh. Delta Delta and Americans A321s have around 190 seats, even with five rows of first class. Yeah. So I think even the network carriers on the 737-10, so Ryanair is going to have 228. I think the network carriers are going to have about 200 Close seats. Close to 200. Mm-hmm. This is good and bad. I mean... It, it's very efficient. It's very, the 737 is very economical. And, you know, our whole discussion about coming up with a clean sheet design, why, you know, if you're set, if we're seeing all these, if you're selling 300, 150 planes at a time, Boeing's like, why do we need to change anything? I mean, this thing is selling like crazy right now. Yeah. Well, and we just found out this morning, Reuters is reporting that Turkish is expected to place an order in June. This is mind blowing. We, we've been talking about these record breaking deals in the last six months. In June, Turkish is expected to order 400 wide-body airplanes and 200 narrow-body airplanes. And we were talking about this before we started recording. That yeah. could be over two, 250, 300, possibly $400 billion for the order. Well, United recently ordered 200 wide-bodies, and that was the largest wide-body order. So Turkish is ordering twice that? I don't even know where they're going to put this these airplanes. They've got to have grand plans for Ist- Istanbul is already a huge hub. This could easily make it the biggest. It, this could this could supersede Dubai if this actually happens. Turkey is a a very populated country, and Istanbul still is really the only hub in that country. Mm-hmm. Look at countries like Germany. Germany smaller. I'm pretty sure Germany is smaller population wise than Turkey. They have a hub in Munich. They have a hub in in right. Frankfurt, and mm-hmm. it works really well. Ankara is kind of a regional city. I, mm-hmm. I guess you could say they've got like some some traffic to Europe and some traffic to the Middle East, but really no long haul international. Could Turkish build a brand new airport in Ankara like they did in Istanbul and have two hubs to be able to then relieve some of the pressure from Istanbul? Mm-hmm. And maybe there's another city that I'm not thinking of, but Ankara is the capital. So yeah. why not put a, a new airport, a, a big hub there. Oh, that's right. Have a second one. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. So we're, let's move uh, a little bit further east. This next story is a confluence of two topics we cover quite frequently, Indian aviation and aircraft engines. This Indian low-cost carrier, I believe it's actually the third or fourth largest airline in India. I don't know too much about it. Um, it's called Go First, formerly known as Go Air. They filed for bankruptcy last week and has asked Indian courts for insolvency protection. 
an Indian airline declaring bankruptcy with the, you know, with the explosive growth there. How is this happening? They were founded in 2005. Go first is India. Okay. They're the fourth largest uh, Indian airline with a fleet of 153 planes. What makes this story a little bit more interesting is go first, go first claims that it's bankruptcy filing, that it's insolvency issues are due to faulty Pratt and Whitney engines on its fleet of A320 Neos. You know, we talk about airplanes and we're starting to talk about engines. This is a really interesting story and it's we're seeing the effects around the world. So it's not just go first. The airline says that more than half of its 54 A320 Neos are currently grounded with faulty engines. Pratt Whitney said in a countersuit that it's go that go first claims are faulty. <laughs> However, Airbus Airbus said this month that Pratt & Whitney has been struggling to keep up with engine deliveries and confirmed that several airlines have complained about faulty engines on their Neos. This is a huge problem that people don't, I mean, we don't see, you know, especially non-aviation people. It's not the planes, it's the engines. This is a very juicy story. And I, I think that if not for the engine issue, India's fourth largest airline filing for bankruptcy protection wouldn't have made global news. But because... Pratt and Whitney, and mm-hmm. we talked about Pratt and Whitney as one of the three major players in, in the en- global aviation engine production topic. I, I, this, this I think, is drawing attention worldwide from the aviation industry and even the business industry. And I, I could even see the litigation side, the the lawyers and and con- country specific law yeah. and laws getting pulled into this as well. This is one of those for for the avi- aviation industry. I think that this case is going to be one of those generational Supreme Court type cases right. that that we that we talk about that we look back on. Go first versus Pratt and Whitney. <laughs> what are we talking about here? So this is the Pratt and Whitney one thousand family, the Pratt and Whitney GTF family of engines, which is on the A three twenty Neos, on the A three twenty one Neos, on the A two twenties. It's it's the primary engine on the A two twenty. So right now, Doug, Air Baltic, 25% of their fleet is is down for maintenance on these engines. How can Pratt and Whitney sue and, and say that it's not them? Right. How can they say that? And, you know, initially, so it's it's affecting these airlines that are hop- operating in um, hot and humid conditions more, right? But Swiss is having issues with their A220s. 10 out of 40, like 25% of their fleet is grounded because of these issues. Raytheon is Pratt & Whitney. So Raytheon owns Pratt & Whitney. Yeah, they're the parent company. So mm-hmm. even their CEO said they recognize the problems. And he said they're flying an average of 10,000 hours on the Pratt & Whitney 1000 GTF before they have to be overhauled. So that's an improvement from where they were. But that is half, that is less than half the overhaul time that the the V2500 needs. So that was the previous engine's on the older A320s, you'll see a V25 engine, which is a Raytheon product. That could go 20,000 hours before it had to be overhauled. And Pratt & Whitney is admitting this. This is going to be really interesting to, to follow. And I, I think that we're not done. And this is, like I said, this is going to be a generational issue in the aviation industry. Let's finish our news segment on a positive note, shall we? Airlines around the world are continuing to report stellar booking trends. Emirates this week announced a $3 billion profit for the last quarter, and they said it's mainly due to a record surge in bookings. IAG, who's the parent company of British Airways, Iberia, Aer Lingus, and others, reported higher ticket sales than previously forecasted. 
and said that its winter 2022-2023 bookings beat expectations. Air France, KLM, Lufthansa, and Ryanair have all previously made similar comments regarding their forward bookings and their winter Well, yeah, results. you can hear, like, people are lamenting, non-revs especially, like, Tyler is like, hey, have you noticed the bookings going up? Absolutely. And, you know, it used to be in the summer, this leisure travel, so the non-revs could expect to get a seat in business class because it's mostly leisure travel. Not anymore. It's just like a regular, it's just onesies and twosies available on these flights already. This is what we're seeing in North America. So you're saying this is all over the world. That's a Mm -hmm. great problem for our industry. It is. Yeah. And once again, I'm going to toot our own horn. We predicted that that by this year, global aviation would be back. And I add in others were saying possibly 2026, right. 2027. Here we are. We're here way above the timeline. Well, and, you- and we're seeing that with bringing it back to the orders. We're seeing that with the orders too. And I, I know we're, we'll probably talk about Turkish when we get to June and, and they make the announcement. But mm-hmm. just thinking about this logistically, Ryanair 300 airplanes on order, Turkish 600 we talked about the new Saudi airline, Korea, yeah. several s- several hundred, Air India, mm-hmm. 400. The, those four airlines right there, those four airlines have basically zapped production mm-hmm. or uh, ability for all the other global airlines to get take delivery of airplanes between like 2029 and probably 2033, 34. Yeah. All these airlines who aren't ordering right now, they are going to be so far behind when these booking trends continue to push on through the rest of this decade. Yeah, you know, we're concerned about the R word and that could still happen, but inflation is is starting to drop, at least in this country, and hopefully that happens around the rest of the world. So things are stabilizing and this relationship between the US and China, there seems to be a thaw in it because we talked about that last week and with more routes opening up between the two countries and China officially said, hey, we want to try and resolve this. Now, China has things that, you know, they just will not let go of. You know, they, don't, they won't let go of Taiwan, you know, the whole world re- recognizing Taiwan as a separate entity. <laughs> That's something that we have to kind of skirt around. But China really wants to try and mend things because their economy is uh, not doing as well as the rest of the world. Now, you still have the this crisis in Ukraine. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but it seems like the world economies are kind of working around that. All these things are going to be interesting to follow. Our main topic this week is also really interesting. The Biden administration announced all new regulations that once finalized will require airlines to compensate passengers and cover meals and hotels if they're stranded for reasons within the airline's control. This additional compensation is on top of refunds for flights that are affected, and will be triggered if the airline is at fault for a flight being canceled or significantly delayed. The Department of Transportation will write the rules, though there's no date yet for when the rules will be announced and will take effect. President Biden said, quote, you deserve more than just getting the price of your ticket refunded. You deserve to be fully compensated. Your time matters. The impact on your life matters. Okay, so I would ask President Biden, does that also apply when I'm on the metro train and the train is delayed, can I get like a couple dollars compensation? <laughs> yes. Cause that's my time, right? When I'm at the doctor's office and he told me to be there at one o'clock and he's not ready to one thirty, can he compensate me for that time? I, I don't know yeah. why the airlines are constantly like we're held to a higher standard than everyone else. 
before you go on, yeah. I, I, w- I want to just piggyback on what you said in my notes, and I'm going to read directly yeah. off my notes. <laughs> I, I wrote, do we get compensated when our doctor is late to an appointment like- or our barber or our barber, barber cancels on us? Yeah. What about Uber? Oh, I've yeah. had several drivers cancel on me when they see where I'm going. I don't get compensated. I just request a new ride. Yeah. I literally put that in my notes. Well, and you, you just you just said the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And so is this really a problem at the airlines? Is this like a, you know, we both work for the airlines. Do we, are we horrible at maintaining a schedule? Are we horrible at flying the flights that we say we're going to fly? We're not, Doug. So, so far this year, only 1.6% of flights have been canceled. I would like to check Greyhound, Amtrak, and see if any of these public transportation organizations do as well as the airline. This is down from 2.1% at the same point in 2022. Oh my God, so that's a huge improvement just over 2022. According to Airlines for America, now A4A represents the large US network carriers, more than half of the cancellations since January 2022 have been caused by extreme weather or air air traffic control issues, which are expected to worsen the ongoing staff shortages Doug, I see your face grimacing, but there's so much to discuss. But go ahead. I I know you (laughs) just say your piece. (laughs) Contrary to popular belief, airlines aren't trying to screw passengers. They just aren't. Believe it or not, we, you, me, all of our coworkers, Tyler, everyone who works in the industry, we actually enjoy our jobs. We actually enjoy taking people around the world, taking people from point A to point B. We're not out there trying to say, how can I cancel this flight? We will exhaust, We're not to let- Doug, we will exhaust every option. This is my job. I do this every day. We exhaust every yes. option before we cancel a flight. And how many do we cancel a delay? How many do we cancel a day? Maybe one at my station, which has like 200 yeah. flights. We're, we're not delaying or canceling flights just out of spite. And I'm afraid that if, with, with this, I'm afraid that the law of unintended consequences is, is going to rear its ugly head right. when these new rules come into effect. And, and here's how. Will employees be forced to take unnecessary risk? Mm-hmm. Any employee group, yeah. pilots, flight attendants, ops, mechanics, maintenance, mm-hmm. mechanics, are, are it is again, law of unintended consequences, is there going to be this added pressure of this flight has to go mm-hmm. because otherwise we're going to have to compensate these people? And, and and not just that, but it's like, now how are we going to rebook the people? We, we talk about the, in the opening, you talked about these these people, families getting buses or vans or whatever going together. Like, is there going to be this, this, this push? Mm-hmm. Whether it's, I don't think that management, I, I, I would hope management wouldn't push us into taking things unnecessarily just to avoid these these new compensation things but it that's putting this giant umbrella or cloud over the entire industry for all of us who work in it yeah feeling that pressure of oh man we like we we really have to and we already do Mm -hmm. we already do feel the pressure of trying to get people home for weddings and funerals and and you name it yeah drew as you mentioned I, I think that the government is on an unnecessary crusade against the airline industry. Well, I, it, it really is. Well, I think it, it seems like we are just being pinpointed. Well, I think we're an easy target, and you know we're not political on this podcast, but it's from both sides. We're going into mm-hmm. an election in 2024, so each side wants to be the champion of the common man, right? And the airlines yeah. are an easy target because we're in the news all the time. But I would tell the Biden administration and Congress, all politicians. When my flights are, when the flight is delayed an hour because we're waiting due to backups at TSA and CBP, and we have to compensate these people, 
can I call the port director for the CBP and the TSA manager and charge them back? Can I send them a bill? For it? Because <laughs> my, I'm, I'm trying to get the flights on time. And I'm not blaming. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the traffic is crazy busy. We're not blaming anyone. We're not expected to fine. We're not going to expect to charge anyone back. I, I just want the government to know no one is doing this on purpose. If we did it on purpose, we should pay damages. We're doing, this is just, you know, struggles that we have that a lot of things we can't control. But one thing I want to mention, yeah. maintenance delays, that's controllable, right? It's maintenance. It's not an act of God and it's not air traffic control or customs. I really have a problem with compensating anyone for a maintenance delay. A maintenance delay is a safety related item. And I have worked in customer service where people want compensation because their flight is delayed due to maintenance. And you know, my response is, this is a safety item. If we have to, if we need time to fix something so that you can have a safe flight to San Francisco, you don't get a reward. You don't get a $300 check because we're doing something to make sure the airplane is safe. Having said that, our airline does compensate. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing in writing. There's no, there's no law for it. But if we have a long delay, we do sometimes compensate people just out of the, you know, the goodness uh, you know, just to, to create goodwill, even though we're not required yeah. to. Well, in in the contract of carriage too, at most airlines, like I've I've gotten free hotels many times. Oh, yeah. from the airline mm-hmm. for for certain situations. So it, it's it again, we're not against passengers being taken care of. Yeah. But un, unnecessary rules pushed on to punitive. It, it seems like punitive right. rules, and and pa- passengers seem to be celebrating this, and and good good for them. Like, hey, they're they're celebrating. Hey, I might get paid if, which is good because we we hear these stories about South. I, I hate to pick on Southwest, but Southwest passengers having to pay an arm and a leg over the holidays to fly on someone else to get to this right. life event that that they missed. I, I I totally get that, but what people don't realize is if airlines start getting charged mm-hmm. and having to pay out more, yeah. guess who's guess who that ultimately is going to fall back on? Yeah. The passenger. Yeah. Ticket price ticket prices are going to go up because the airlines are going to have to account for this on their balance sheets. Yeah. Ticket prices are going to go up, passengers are going to pay more with that peace of mind knowing that if something goes wrong, I get there, but this is going to have an outsized effect on the low cost carriers like Spirit and Frontier who have brought air travel to the masses in ways that we hadn't seen ever in, in the industry. Right. And that, that could, unfortunately, with these new rules, that could start to shift and change to where a lot of people can no longer afford those tickets right. because the tickets are higher so that the airlines are ready to compensate for something that could or could not ha- right. happen. Yeah, and again, no other public transportation system compensates you if it's a delay. If the if your Amtrak train is delayed, oh well, you know I'm doing the emoji with my hands up. There's no yeah. expectation of compensation. But one thing, Doug, that they can do within this, right? If they want to show that they're looking out for people's rights, our airline. If your flight is delayed due to something that's controllable by us, we will take care of your needs. Like we'll take care of a meal voucher. We'll do a hotel. We'll also, if we have to route you on another airline, if we don't have seats on ours and it's something that we caused, we don't do it all the time, but we have that ability. The, the DOT, if they want to you know, do something that will be helpful, 
have all airlines expected to follow those same guidelines, right? Makes make Southwest airline. Yeah. And that, that, that is part of the problem with Southwest is they don't have airline agreements. So when, when their network shut down over the holidays, Mm -hmm. they didn't have the ability to put people on other airlines. And it's not just, it's any airline that doesn't have interline agreements. And I'm talking about Allegiant, Spirit, Frontier, Southwest. If their flight cancels, they can only rebook you on their airline. There needs to be a mechanism where they can book you on any airline. So maybe the DOT can can um, facilitate that. But all airlines should be should be required to offer that because that's a huge expense for us. When we have to put customers on American or Delta, we don't get the low fare. I mean, we have agreements with them, so we don't pay the high fare. But you pay a, a decent price to move these people on other carriers. Frontier, Southwest, all those airlines should also have to do that. Funny thing to me about this, because you were talking about the TSA, like if TSA is backed up, are, are we going to charge TSA? I'm hoping that that will be baked into these rules, mm-hmm. that, that there will be things that if it is, that that's outside the airline's control, right. the, every, everything that they're saying. But this is where it's funny to me. They made this big grand announcement and got everyone riled up about it. They haven't even written the rules yet. So they, they it was like this this big, you know, right. uh, president speaking in front of everyone, mm-hmm. huge launch of this new program that wishy-washy, oh, by the way, <laughs> the DOT is going to write the rules. We don't know when it's going to be released and it's going to come out later. Yeah, It's like, wait, why, why not write the rules, come up with a program and then launch it and say it starts in three months instead of this big grand announcement for right. maybe someday in the future we're helping you and it's going to be there. And then everyone gets in a tizzy. Well, yeah. And, you know, we're not not we just don't know how this is going to be enforced. Right. We're not knocking all government regulation like this whole taxi time regulation that came about like 2015. I actually was a good thing. I think it's a good regulation because at three hours, we need to bring the plane back after a three hour taxi. Make sure that you're able to get off the plane. You know, that's good because before that we've had not we our airline, but airlines in general have had people on planes for seven hours. There needed to be some legislation to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Doug, we have to do a quick go around on what I thought was just a quick footnote. This is things that annoy us. So for you, it was direct flight. And for me, it was the announcement that says all ticketed and confirmed ticketed and confirmed passengers must be on board. The discussion should have just ended there. But then you had to go go and open this can of worms. <laughs> what happened when you were sitting at a gate in Denver? Me? I, I didn't do anything. You were the one who told me. <laughs> Listen for it on my trip home when I got to Denver and I heard this all ticketed and confirmed passengers every 60 <laughs> seconds. I decided to record as many as I could and I sent them to you. And for the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, go back and listen to the outtakes in Boarding Pass 179. Trust us, the two minutes or three minutes is totally worth your time. Well, and when you hear that at any airport terminal, you're going to laugh like we're probably going to do now. Every time we say, all ticketed and confirmed passengers must now be on board. I'm going to laugh. All right. We did end up debating quite a bit after that how someone could be ticketed but not confirmed or vice versa. Our listener, John, sent us a great email explaining some of these scenarios. He said that one example is a crew member who is jump seating. That individual is confirmed but not yet ticketed. Therefore, the agent calling all ticketed and confirmed passengers to board means they're waiting to see if seats are available for the jump seater. The same could be said for other non-revs who are confirmed but not ticketed. And I think you mentioned times where you were in this position as a revenue passenger, where you were confirmed but not ticketed. Yeah, when I'm when I'm traveling on a government ticket, initially I'm confirmed, but there's no ticket number associated with it. If, if I book a, a trip 
a government trip through our government travel portal for two weeks from now. I, I'm confirmed. I, I have a PNR. I can go into my whatever airline I'm on. I can sometimes choose a seat. I can see my entire reservation, but there's no ticket number yet. Right. So I'm confirmed, but not ticketed. I get ticketed five days prior to departure. Mm-hmm. That's when the government takes my credit card because I have a government travel card. That's when they swipe it. I, I mean, it's not really a right. swipe, but you, you can picture it that way. Five days prior, that's when they actually pay for the ticket. So the airline, even though they didn't get the money yet, they have confirmed me knowing that the government will pay five days prior. Uh-huh. Once the government pays, then I'm both confirmed and ticketed and I have a ticket number. Okay, so Doug, I understand that, but they're making this announcement in the boarding area, all ticketed. I, yes. If you were not ticketed, yes. how did you get into the boarding area? So With a, okay, so that's a great question. When I, when I jump seated on Southwest a couple weeks ago, I was not ticketed. I, I didn't have a, a ticket number, but I had a security boarding pass. It, it, that Basically, that's what it said. It was a document that got me through TSA mm-hmm. to get to the gate. I was confirmed as a standby passenger on that flight, but I did not have a ticket number yet. And in fact, on the boarding pass, it said security document only, not valid for boarding. Okay. Well, Okay, can we just do this? Can they just say, can uh, all confirmed passengers should now be on board? Yeah, I'll, I'll write to my to my congressman, right, and senator. Yeah, I, I mean, forget about the this compensation. If they could, if the DOT could just put in a rule for that, so I wouldn't have to hear these annoying announcements of ticketed and confirmed. Thanks, John, for dredging that up again. It's like nonstop versus direct. Everyone has their opinion, and everyone thinks that they're right. That said, it was a pleasure meeting you in Dallas last month, John. And listeners, you have to check out his blog. He's both a traveler and a runner, and he decided to combine these two passions to write a blog blog about flying and runs. As both a runner and a traveler myself, I think it's an awesome concept. Great website. You guys have to check it out. It's www.flyrun.fun. That sounds like us. We fly and we run. I I think that would attract a large group of people. Yeah, so check yeah, he, he does it. he does trip trip reviews and run reviews. Mm-hmm. Like he did the Berlin Marathon. I think I saw Bahrain Marathon or half marathon. It, it's cool. It's it's really it's a really cool concept. Yeah, especially for crew members. You know, because when you're on a layover, you want to get some exercise. He can tell you a scenic areas to run. Yeah, absolutely. All right, before we end this week, we want to introduce something exciting and a new way listeners can reach out to us. Doug, you mentioned that your buddy and one of our listeners, Gary, suggested this idea. Yeah, thanks, Gary, for the suggestion. He's an avid podcast listener, and he said that several podcasts he listens to have voicemails where people can call and leave a message for the co-host. We're following suit, and we just created a Google Voice account. You can now call our number with feedback, questions, rants, or anything else you want to hear and and or share. Could we be opening a whole can of worms where we're going to have to answer all these complaints like some kind of call center? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could be. I, I hopefully we don't. The floodgates aren't open, but we'll we'll see. We'll have to parse through some of the calls. Yeah. All right. So all we ask is that you begin your message by letting us know if you consent to us using the recording on air. If not, we can read what you say. Doug, I've noticed like when we share people's comments, they love it. Like Francis, whomever, mm-hmm. like they love it when they hear their name and we share their comment. We're actually going to share your voice, so it's almost like you're with us. You know, having this discussion with with, with us, which is so cool. Or if you really just want to call and rant and don't want us to talk about it, let us know. Though that's no fun for everyone because we want to share your rant. That that That's podcast gold. The number for the listeners in the U.S. is 
1-800-522-5620. Or if you're calling from outside the U.S., be sure to use the country code. However you dial it, it's either 001 or plus one followed by the number. Gary was gracious enough to demonstrate and even included a question for us. Hey, Doug. Hey, Drew. This is Gary in Oklahoma. You guys uh, have clearly traveled quite extensively. I'm curious, what's your favorite airport that you've been to, whether it's location-wise or just features that the airport has or some other design aspect? What would you say is your absolute favorite? You said that this was going to be a softball question when I was texting with you, but I actually had to put a lot of thought into it. And I I would have to say, I, I was thinking about this from both an, well, I, I was going to say an athlete standpoint, but more from a, it's a really nice airport terminal. It's bright, it's airy, and it's relatively easy for connections if you have a tight connection. Mm -hmm. And it also has a lot of amenities, restaurants, bars, clubs. That would be Detroit. Really? The Delta Terminal in been. Detroit is is probably my my favorite airport in the world, I would say. Huh. Wow. Okay. You're, you're, you're not going to see a lot of variety yeah. from an AppGeek standpoint. It's mainly Delta and, and SkyTeam. But for those of you who have been to the D Detroit airport and you can picture there's a, a monorail or a tram mm -hmm. that runs inside the airport. So it's not like in a, a dark, dingy tunnel down below. Right. It, it's picturesque. It's a very good looking airport, lots of amenities. And I, it, it's just, it's such a, every time I go through D Detroit, I, I love it. So now this was a previous Northwest hub. Do you feel like mm -hmm. um, since the merger with Delta, it has improved Detroit? Yeah. Uh, in fact, when it opened, I think it was like 2002 Northwest had, had basically paid for it and, and built this brand new. And at the time, think back to 2002 and the airport situation around the U.S. having this jewel of a terminal right. was fantastic. A lot of complaints at the time were that the concessions weren't all that great, that there weren't a lot of restaurants and places to sit and eat and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's drastically improved over the last 21 years since it's been open. Wow. And shout out to Eric, who works at Detroit. You know, we could fly yeah. there. He can take us for a, a nickel tour like I do at Dulles. All right. For me, uh, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's LAX. If I'm going to be stuck at an airport for the whole day, it's going to be LAX. A lot of clubs that we can use, number one, and so much eye candy as far as airlines, aircraft types. And then you can just, you don't even have to take an Uber. You can just walk out the airport, walk to In-N-Out Burger, and just sit and watch planes, you know, to, to pass the time. The hotels around there are great. And it's LA, you know, you have all this entertainment and food and everything. So absolutely, LAX is my favorite airport if I have to connect through someplace and spend a few hours. That's great. I, I actually used to hate LAX, but now that so many airlines and, and LAWA, the Los Angeles World Airports, have, have put billions of dollars into upgrading the terminals, L LA has actually really, really improved. Yeah, 100%. Now, one more thing that I did want to bring up, it relates to Gary's question about airports. Drew, did you see that LaGuardia Terminal B received a five-star rating from Skytrax? This is the first time ever that a U.S. airport has received a five-star rating. We've come a long way from when then-Vice President Biden famously said in 2014, quote, if I blindfolded you and took you to LaGuardia Airport in New York, you must think, I must be in some third-world country, unquote. So do you know Donald Trump said the same thing? Like he went to yeah. Qatar and saw the airport and is like, this is disgraceful <laughs> how our airports are. I, I thought right? I thought that it was Trump. I, I because I, I thought that, that that quote was Trump. Yeah. And when I looked it up, it everything that was coming up was Biden. And I was like, wow, they they must have both said it, but I, I couldn't find the Trump comment. But if 
both of the previous two U.S. presidents compared LaGuardia to a third world country, and now they have a five-star Skytrax rating. And, we have come a long way. And I want to apologize to all of our listeners in New York, but around the airlines, we frequently refer to LaGuardia, or we did, as La Garbage. That is, yeah. no, no, I mean, this is a good news story because that, that's going away. People don't say that because LaGuardia Terminal is probably better than where you work, right? Where all of us work in the airlines. So yeah, ni- nice turnaround by uh, New York LaGuardia. Now they got to figure out the uh, ATC issues. The ATC and also getting to the airport. That still is a pain. Right. There's no Getting from Manhattan to LaGuardia. Yeah. You have to take a bus. The, the, the subway doesn't run there, but I digress. <laughs> Well, that's where air taxis will help. Anyways, to our listeners, this podcast is your show. So go on our website, nexttripnetwork.com, and let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at nexttrippodcast. Please tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. All right. So now you can also call us on our Google Voice number to ask a question or just rant about something. The number is 872-529-5620 when calling from the U.S., or use country code 001 or plus one when calling from outside the U.S. This is going to be great. You know, it'll take some time to ramp up, so definitely call in. We definitely want to use some of your uh, rants on the air, so definitely do that. Thanks to all of our listeners for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. 